welcome to episode 230 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was published on Sunday 24th of November 2019. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed, and on today's show, we've got a head-to-head interview with Yanto Barker, the former pro cyclist who rebooted a racing career to promote his fledgling premium cycle clothing brand, Lucol. As you'll hear in this hour-long show, at first, Yanto did all of the jobs in his startup, from designing to dispatching. But as Lucol grew, he delegated to experts. Lecole now employs 33 people, including eight in Italy. Early in the company's trajectory, Yanto bought the Italian factory that had been making his high-end apparel, and it's fascinating to hear how and why he did this. He's affluent now, he says, but Yanto explains how he didn't start loaded. His, then, is a rags-to-riches story. I dig into the company's financials, asking how Lecole raised money through crowdfunding as well as attracting venture capital. In the chat, we don't stop to explain terms, so here are two acronym explainers. HMRC is Her Majesty's Revenues and Custom, in other words, the UK's tax authorities, and EIS is the Enterprise Investment Scheme in which investors can claim up to 30% income tax relief on their investments. As you'll hear, Yanto is a driven individual. And this interview was conducted for a profile I shall do on him for Forbes.com. You can check out all of my Forbes articles at Forbes.com forward slash sites forward slash Carlton Reed. That link and a bunch of others can be found on the show notes for this episode at the hyphen spokesmen.com. And as with all of the latest shows, that website has a full transcript of this episode. So you had to tell me about your racing career uh, before you started Lacole. So I was a very single-minded young man. And at the age of 16, I was pretty clear that I wanted to be a cyclist. Uh, and at 17, I was going to college and decided that, um, coming back from college one day, I didn't want to go there anymore. I thought I could do a better job at racing my bike for a career. And that that's what I wanted to concentrate on. So I came home to tell my parents who have always been very open with me and, and supportive of my choices, as long as I understood the implications and seriousness and that, that I wasn't overlooking any serious details, then they would support me to do whatever I wanted. Um, at the time, I was I was in a very modest financial situation with my parents. My mum was a single parent and she brought me and my sisters up um, on her own, basically. And she was receiving family credit for me 
attending higher education. And she made it very clear that if I stopped, then that that income would stop and therefore I would need to pick it up and contribute it from a personal point of view. So I basically asked her how much that was uh, and uh, I think it was about £30 a week. And I said, fine, uh, I will, I'll get a job part-time a couple of days a week and I'll, I'll cover it, which I did. So I think I went to college one more day, picked up my stuff, told my tutors that's what I was doing. And from then on, I was 100% full-time uh, as a cyclist. I was a junior at the time. I was riding for the national team, so the GB national team. I was in a team with Bradley Wiggins. And um, I was actually riding and racing all around the world already as part of the junior national series, international series. And, um, you know, riders like Tom Boone and Fabian Cancellara were my generation as juniors. And, um, you know, that was the world I lived in. And I was looked after like an athlete, given bikes, kit, travel expenses, you know, hotels and flights booked from, from then on. It's still a hell of a leap, though. That that's a very brave decision you took, and your your mum, yeah. taking that kind of decision at that kind of age. That 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 had obviously financial implications. Yeah, it did. It was brave, actually. And I look back, and actually, the bravery was probably uh, overshadowed by naivety. And that's actually a theme we'll come back to if you ask a few more questions of more recent times. I would say it's a similar characteristic in that I am brave almost a little bit too brave for myself sometimes but luckily I'm quite resourceful and determined and I do I love a challenge and I'm often challenging myself and that was the first one that was the first big occasion that was the first big challenge is can I earn my living from my passion my cycling passion and the answer was yes I can and can I you know look after myself financially and and live that life that I really want to and and I did and I'm very proud of myself that I was able to so tell me, what, what years are we talking about here? Uh, 1997, 98, 99, and onwards, basically. I mean, 97, that was, I was, my first ride for a GB team was 1997. I remember it very clearly. There was the Tamworth two-day in uh, the Midlands with Bradley Wiggins and a number of other riders who didn't, didn't continue as long as we did. And um, from that was from then on, I was looked after as part of the GB setup. And later, I moved to France um, to ride for a semi-pro team um, and continue my career that way. And then when did you have the idea to start a clothing brand at the same time as as racing? So they actually happened independently because by the time I was 25, I'd been on the podium of the nationals, the national men's, uh, I was a junior national champion at 18. And then I'd been on the podium and best British fin- finisher at the Tour of Britain. And, um, I wasn't getting paid and wasn't getting the contracts for the next year that I really felt like I needed to, to demonstrate that I was going to continue on a trajectory that would, uh, enable me to relax financially at the end of my career, which was sort of 35, 36, 37, depending on which age you choose to stop racing full time. And that made me really nervous. And I felt like I wanted to stop and reinvent myself sooner rather than later. I think as a younger adult, you're a bit more flexible. You're not so set in your ways. And as I described earlier, from the age of 17, I was looked after like a little pop star in a bubble where pretty much everything was given or supplied to me. Now, while that's a real luxury to some people, it's equally quite a institutional conditioning that means when it comes to looking after myself on some basic adult grown-up logistics like paying rent and 
bills and you know council tax and all that kind of stuff i i wasn't i wasn't needing to do that it was all covered for me i was looked after so at 25 um i actually did the commonwealth games in 2006 on the 25th of march in melbourne and that was my last race from the first half of my career i then took three years out uh, 2006, seven and eight, where I didn't race my bike or even exercise for half of that time at all, <clears throat> which is a real shock to the system, actually. Um, but I, I'm a very all or nothing kind of person. So when I stopped, I didn't touch my bike for 18 months. I didn't even do any kind of exercise for 18 months. Um, and I was really keen to change my focus and um, create a gap in my life that was going to get filled from the next phase. Which and I'd how did never, you make money at that yeah, point? Yeah, exactly, how to make money. And I'd never actually intended to come back to cycling. So at this point, 2006, the middle of 2006 and I, I'm, I'm ignoring cycling. I, I watch a little bit on the telly, but I'm really not intending to have anything more to do with it. I'm actually researching what other jobs could I get, um, what other businesses maybe I could start, um, what ways could I earn my living, and how am I going to you know, look after myself financially going forward. So get to middle of 2008 and I come up after doing a bit of a feasibility on a couple of different businesses. One, I'd had a couple of jobs and I didn't like having a job. I like to be self-employed and I like to look after my own, um, my own time and responsibilities. So I did a feasibility on a couple of different projects like, uh, cycling training, coaching, which is quite popular for ex athletes at the moment, uh, travel, which was another one. And then the clothing equally bikes and, and parts. I also looked at, and the clothing idea was the one that felt like the most uh, potential and the one that I thought could actually go the furthest. So I started to give that quite a bit more attention. So really, middle of 2008, I was starting to focus on researching suppliers, fabrics, designs, brand names. I was going through the logistics of what it takes to set up a business, including registering a company's house on domain names, You know, all the things that have to be done uh, before anyone even knows about it. These are the things that I was starting to look at. Is, is that- and then when did you actually physically found, well, you founded the business then, but when did you actually physically have yeah. products? Great. So uh, get to the end of 2008 and I am missing cycling. And I start to think to myself, well, if I'm going to start a cycling brand, then I could, why don't I go back to cycling and use my own uh, profile to promote the business? So by this point, I'd come up with a name. I knew what I wanted to what I wanted to achieve in terms of the price point, the position in the market, uh, a lot of the fundamentals, as in route to market, um, the products that I wanted to improve from what was available in other brands, and um, I started training properly towards the end of two thousand and eight, and I began racing again early two thousand and nine. So um, I started to receive products and, and samples in early two thousand and nine and um, continued developing the samples actually for another year and a bit until we started trading officially in 2011 and I had continued to race full-time as well so I was from the beginning of 2009 I was running in parallel a full-time racing career again although I rode for myself I sponsored myself effectively with my brand name on my uh, jersey even though we weren't officially trading yet and then um, I was setting up all the foundations of what needed to be done for the business to to begin trading in 2011. So this is why in some uh, company profiles I've seen, it says 2011. 
others it says no 2009 so basically both both are correct yeah so the idea was formed earlier than 2011 but we weren't a company trading until 2011 right okay and then i want to go backwards a bit yeah did you put on weight when you'd stopped riding uh-huh. and 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 how did you find getting back into 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 cycling what physiologically happened to you so um no i didn't put on any weight and i actually tried for a while so some people reading this might might feel <laughs> like that's not fair but basically i didn't put on a single kilo i changed my body composition so i had a lot less muscle when i wasn't doing any exercise but um i actually didn't change weight and then when it came back to racing and training properly i mean when i first started i was i was riding very slowly compared to what i used to but i was very clear that to get back to a strong condition physical condition I just needed to focus on intensity and the speed would come back naturally. So I went out for my first few rides at the end of 2008 in preparation for the 2009 season and I just pushed as hard as I could. But I was riding three, four, maybe even five miles an hour slower than I was used to, but I ignored the speed. I just focused on my intensity and I pushed as hard as I could and I knew if I did that, I would get fit quickly. Like I said, I hadn't put on any weight, so I wasn't losing weight. And the form came back actually within six weeks, even after just under three years off, I was, you know, back to being as fast as any club rider. And then within another three or four weeks, I was doing 25, 30 hours in a week of training in the UK in January. And I was fully committed to making sure I was as fast as I could possibly be and as good as as close to as good as I was before I started, so up until the age of 25, I got back there by the time I did my first race, which was in February 2009. Interesting. So then you've you've got the, the brand up and running in 2011. You then have about five years of running the brand and racing at the same time? Yeah. Yeah, that was – I mean, that. I look back now. I mean, I didn't have a family then. I've got two children now um but it was just myself and my girlfriend who's now my wife and um i mean it was a seven day a week job i trained every single morning during the week uh sometimes up to 100 miles i'd go from london to brighton and back and then in the afternoons i'd come to the office and i'd look at spreadsheets i'd look at designs i'd sign off samples i'd do all the things that needed to be done in the work environment to make sure that the business continued and then um a little bit later, so 2015 and 16, I was racing more internationally again. I was taking part in world tour races like uh, Tour of Dubai, Tour of Poland, uh, Kern, Brussels, Kern, those kind of races. And on the team bus between stages, you do 250 kilometer stages. And I was trying to check my emails after those kinds of stages. And it was really, really hard work. And I look back now and I think I was really committed and <laughs> uh, very dedicated. And I did that for a number of years, like you say, from 2011 until 2016. Uh, August 2016 was my last race. Um, I was working virtually seven days a week and often late into the evenings and, and definitely weekends every single week. And you are farming an awful lot of stuff out. So you, you, you're getting somebody else to do the designs. So you're basically buying in expertise. Is that how you did it? Yeah, but I always, basically, I did every single job in this business before I hired the person that now looks after that department or that that specific role. So 
as a founder and entrepreneur, your role is very adaptive to what needs to be done. And at an early stage, you know, there was me and um, a factory. So at an early, early stage, there was me on my own. And I had a part-time secretary who just managed my emails while I was out training or um, if I was abroad or racing um, internationally. And then the, the, the interesting thing is, because I, I never worked a, a, a full-time job in the office, I was always racing my bike. So it was a bit like I always had a morning meeting that took at least four hours. So um, I'd, I'd been very good quite early on at being quite good at delegating, delegating the responsibilities, delegating the jobs, and making sure that I checked up on them rather than did them myself. So that is how it started, but I did do every single job. So I did accounts, I did design, um, I did branding, I did website building, I did um, planning, I did forecasting, I did the finances, I did investment, um, I did uh, people managing, you know, it, I did product testing. You know, this this is really, you know, fundamental to me knowing every part of this business is that I did that job in the beginning. So when it comes to hiring, it's actually quite a luxury because I have someone who's a specialist in each department and each role, and they do a much better job than I did. So actually, it's testament to me that I could adapt myself with no qualifications to run and do all those different jobs at different times, just to, just enough to get it to where it needed to be until I could employ the person to come in and take that on full time and with the training and expertise they have in their experience to do it like it should be done instead of how I was doing it. And how many people are you employing now? Um, we're just over 30 now, I think we're 32, 33, not everybody's on a full five day week, but that's pretty much where we are. 33 people. And th that's, that's UK. That's UK and Italy. We're, right. We're so let's go to Italy then. So, so tell me how you, how you first of all contacted, uh, that factory interview. So, yeah. and then how you ended up owning it. Yeah. So good, good question. Um, that I was, uh, contacted by them. So at the time I was looking for samples, I was actually getting them made in Pakistan, in China, in Italy, in the UK. And I was looking for someone that I could trust and rely on would deliver the products that I needed reliably, um, both in quality control, in timing, and then managing me as a relationship because I was about to spend the most amount of money I'd ever had in one time. And it was about to be gone on my first order. So um, I had been contacted by them to, to say that they could do custom kits. And I contacted them back again and said, can you do more than custom kit? Could you do a brand for me? I'll give you all the files. I'll give you the name. I'll give you the CADs so you can see what the artworks look like. And then if you make it, then we can start to develop some samples and see how we get on. So that was the first contact I had with a lady called Sandra Sartori, who was an Italian lady based in Treviso, just outside Treviso, a place called Castelfranco. And um, I developed a relationship with her. She delivered some samples for me and they were pretty good. I thought they needed a little bit of work and I asked her, can I come and visit you? And she said, yes, she was an account manager in a, in a factory. And, um, I went to visit her. I got on really well with her. She looked after me as an account and supplied me all of my goods from the very, very first Jersey that ever got made. Um, right up until today, actually, um, she has managed that process and I used that process and she was an account manager for me and I, they were my supplier for about three years. Um, until early 2014, when actually late 2013, I first went there to say, I've got some, I've got some issues with quality control. I've got some issues with reliability. 
uh, in terms of timings. There, I want to I want to see improvements, and I want you to give me some assurance how that's going to happen. And she said, uh, I don't think it can happen. She was very frank. And I said, Well, what, what do you mean? And she said, Because there is uh, there are disagreements in how the business needs to be run, and we're just not going to get invested invested into the departments that need to be invested into to service you in the way you're looking to be serviced at the standard um, that you that you want. And I said, Okay, so what what do I need to do? Because I don't really want to look for a new factory. You know, you've got to run through all your definitions again. You've got to find out you know all of their strengths and weaknesses. And actually, it's a very destabilizing process for a brand that is moving to change its supplier um, and then line it all up so no one notices and you get the right quality product at the right time to sell. And she said, well, you know, you could probably make it, make an offer to buy the business. And I was like, really? I mean, I didn't, I didn't go there to do that. But during this meeting, when I'm complaining about timing and quality control, she said, well, why don't you buy or invest into the business? And I said, okay, let me think about it. And uh, I'll need some details. So I asked her a bunch of questions. She answered a bunch of questions. And I said, give me a few months. I'll come back to you. And so I basically pitched to raise some investment to buy them out and um, and take on the factory as a going concern. And uh, about six months later, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so um, I bought an order book. I bought a management team. And I bought all the contacts and facilities I needed to service my product so as no one would notice the transition from the company being registered as it was when I first started to it being incorporated into my business and it being a version of Lacol Limited in Italy that was the manufacturing department. And how many people so are in Italy? There's about eight people there and um, we do have a flexible outsourcing process there as well so obviously cycling kit is very seasonal i was very cautious about taking on fixed overheads because that just creates a very hungry beast of a, of a business that needs feeding you know orders all the time so we can do the minimum but actually we outsource um the real flex in peak season we outsource to a cutting department who is literally a kilometer down the road and a sewing department who help make sure that we can cater for that flex in peaks and troughs of the seasonality. Um, and then I also service a whole bunch of international customers who came with the order book from the original business and were, um, you know, uh, transferred across and we service them continually as well. And these are all cycle. Yeah. Brands, all cycle. Not- there was a little bit of yoga wear. There was a little bit of ski wear, but actually we've tried to, um, sort of steer away from that because actually cycling is our expertise and i think it's important that we do focus on the things that we do well and um yeah so that's what we've done really so we now you know 98 percent cycling so you're seeing what other brands are going to be bringing to market kind of more like um we service sort of international custom customers and I wouldn't say there are any big recognizable brands. There are a few smaller, maybe Southern Hemisphere brands who use our manufacturing, but we don't really share IP very much. I'm quite protective about what we develop. I've spent a long, a long time, a lot of money developing very technical products that I don't really want anyone else to have. And likewise, I'm not hugely concerned with what anyone else is doing in terms of product development because 
you know, I know what a good product should do. I know what I want it to look like. And I'm very focused on delivering that as opposed to looking around at what other brands are doing and maybe sort of incorporating a little bit of this and a little bit of that from other areas. So the investment you got to buy the factory in Treviso, that's before the Crowdcube yes, investment. Yes, the, the, the factory investment was about a third, a third, a third, my savings, a bank loan, and seed investors. And then talk about how you got into doing, well, you got a, a million, just over a million pounds from 344 yeah. investors in when well, you started in 2016 but then it, i think it finished in january 2017 did, yeah. so yeah. we did i mean we started actually on that project to pitch for crowdfunding investment in february 2016 we didn't get to launch on the site on crowdcube until the 17th of november and then we hit Christmas holidays and all sorts of things. It was a really, really challenging time. Probably one of the, the most stressful times I've ever encountered. And I'll add that my wife gave birth to our first daughter in the middle. And I was in the hospital corridor taking phone calls for £250 investment, £1,000 investment, £10,000 investment, while you know we're trying to get through learning how to breastfeed and you know the complications of her birth, which wasn't straightforward either. So that was intense. And um, you know, <laughs> needed needed quite special a special attention. But yeah, we completed in January 2017. Um, we had an issue with HMRC uh, complying with our EIS submission, so that was actually a real challenge. And they wouldn't release funds until that came through, which it thankfully did in about uh, February, so a month later. And all the time is quite anxious, you know, about people are only stating an intent of commitment. They haven't actually paid any money yet. So it's not until EIS uh, compliance confirmation comes through from HMRC that that turns into a actual investment and uh, the money gets paid. So that was quite a stressful time. So other companies have, other cycle clothing companies have gone to Crowdcube and and got investment. I mean, there's there's been a, a couple of, crash and burn companies there who i've done stories on that uh took that money and probably didn't use it terribly wisely so what did you use that 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 million pounds so i was very clear that i bought a factory so when i said in the very very beginning that i was brave this was a stupidly brave move (laughs) because um i had no idea just how big a deal that was to actually incorporate an international manufacturing facility into quite a small UK cycling clothing brand. Um, they were turning over more than I was turning over in the UK, that's for sure. And um, and luckily I'm resourceful and I made it work, but actually it was very, very close for a long time and it was quite stressful. So the, the reason I say that is I was quite clear through the intent to go to Crowdcube and raise that money, that was about a marketing play to build the brand, to justify having a manufacturing facility in Italy because that facility was too big for the brand that I'd, in, I'd incorporated it into um, at the early stage in the beginning. But I always believed I would grow into that factory and that's what we have done. And actually we've surpassed that now. We've grown almost, it's had to expand to accommodate us. 
But in the early stage, it was much too big. So I was really keen that we raised a million pounds, we invest a million pounds into marketing and sales. And I employed a very senior marketing executive from Sky called Simon Creasy uh, at the same time as completing that Crowdcube raise. And then the, the, uh, the money that was raised was very much about improving our systems, software and uh, processes, um, a strong push into product development and a very big play into marketing, PR, and uh, social media. And then, so that was 21% yeah. equity that those those um, 344 have got. Ha, have, have some of them gone on to become quite active and, and really using that, that leverage they've got? Or are they all sleeping they're, investors? They're all excellent investors, I will say. And I'm, I think I'm very fortunate, actually, because there are horror stories of Crowdcube you know, crowdfunding stories of, you know, investors that are a nightmare or, um, you know, knowing what to do with the money, all that kind of stuff is, is a bit, is a bit of a challenge. And when you haven't taken really much investment and then when you, when you raise, you know, what looks like quite a lot, but actually if you, if you think about what we're trying to achieve with a million pounds, it isn't that much. And that's where the danger is actually, it's a, you know, everything moves a lot faster with investment and you have to understand what that means for, the economics of the business, your income versus outgoings, your salary bill each month, your income targets, they if they don't get met, then you have to be really clear about what you're doing about it and responsive to making sure that you have the answers um, because all of the answers need time to get to and uh, time to implement and execute. And that's, I think, the main f- hurdle that a lot of businesses that raise money for the first time fall over on they don't realize that you probably are going to need more money as well. And um, you have to understand the size of the business you're trying to create before it becomes either break even or profitable. And they're all very fluid, those, those forecasts. And you have to be very, very on top of your numbers, very, very on top of your expenses and ready to make some strong decisions very quickly. Um, and I think, yeah, we, I've definitely been very aware of that and made sure that I'm always very close to the numbers, fully clear on what our targets are and if we're hitting them and if we're not hitting them, what that means and how we have to respond to it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a good thing to have lots of investors. We've actually only got 17, in, our, in direct answer to your question, we've only got 17 direct shareholders, uh, including my original seed investors uh, of the 344, I think you mentioned. I, I thought it was 335 or something, but yeah, that's the, um, that's the number. They're all very helpful. They often send me links to interesting articles that are relevant in my space. Um, and equally, uh, you know, very strong advocates of the brand. Um, quite, quite a few of them are active cyclists. Um, and I manage them very, you know, carefully in that I give them the right information at the right time. I respect them all. I make sure that, you know, they're informed of the decisions that we're making, the big stuff. And when I need their sign off, which I do occasionally, um, you know, I give them a heads up that it's coming and inform them of the context of why I'm making that decision and uh, the timings and requirements from their side so as they're clear on what their contribution needs to be. And if they need to get back to me within a certain time frame, they know what that is. Um, and, and they definitely appreciate that. And that helps keep the investor relations really slick. So a second ago, you said that even though you've raised a million pounds, you're going to need well, we, more. Yeah. So then talk, talk yeah. about Puma 
so that's private where, equity. So you've raised two point three five yeah, million. So that's from where Puma yeah. come in, <clears throat> and quite quickly after raising the CrowdCube, I mean, I have uh, financial consultants who helped us put our pitch together for CrowdCube, and I immediately after the completion of CrowdCube kept them on a retainer because they're another set of eyes on the on the on the numbers. They're another set of eyes on the trajectory of the business, and you know, my job as founder and CEO is to make sure that I uh, I source the resources that this business needs to deliver its targets or its potential. And one of those is money. The other is, you know, the right people and expertise. And the other are the projects and partnerships that we set up to, you know, really expand the business and get our names out there. So I kept my financial consultants on a retainer immediately after Crowdcube because I could see the trajectory that we were going on and it was likely that we were going to need more money. So I pre kind of planned that in my in my actions and kept them on board. And that's exactly what happened. But, you know, I think it shouldn't be seen as a negative that we needed more money. What I was doing was I was negotiating really strong partnerships that need, you know, finance and investment to fulfill them. Because if you've got really good, a really big, strong partnership, but you can't activate it, then it's not really worth its full potential. Uh, and you're wasting the money if you don't join up all the dots to connect that partnership to the business and in turn to increasing sales. So I'm very, very black and white around what we do has to deliver growth in turnover. Uh, and if I can't see that in a really obvious way, then I'm either failing or it's either failing in its contribution to the business. So so, so when was Puma? When was Puma, Puma brought on board? talking to them in... Um, March, April 2018, and they completed their first tranche. So um, they actually committed to raise more money. Um, they And they divided it into two tranches. So tranche one was October 2018, and tranche two was just this October, just gone. Um, and both for uh, 2.35 and 2.5 million. So we've raised quite a lot of money now, and I think that gives us a really strong... Uh, platform to push continue to push up into our potential for the next coming for the next couple of years and i combine that with the partnerships that i've signed for next year are also very strong they very much warrant the investment they very much warrant uh puma's contra- financial contribution t- to us to be able to deliver those partnerships to their full potential and in turn allow us as a business to reach our full potential in the cycling apparel market globally. So when you said uh, 2.5 million, was that a top up to 2.5 million or was that 2.5 no. plus 2.35 plus 2.5. Right. So they've got yeah. 5 yeah, million, million basically. So what's, what's the equity they've got? Good question. Uh, I, can't, I haven't got those numbers off the top of my head, but they raised on uh, pre-money Valuation of tranche one of five million, I think. So their two point three five was twenty something percent, and then uh, our pre money valuation for tranche two was based on a on a on a turnover metric, two point five times our turnover. So I think our pre money was nine, just under eight and a half million. So the two point five came in eight and a half million valuation. So it puts us about ten and a half million now valuation post completion of tranche two. Now, when I look at that CrowdCube video, yeah. it's got 
it's got you on there, very nice. But it's also got all of the headlines with you know the Financial Times and with the the Times and stuff saying how cycling yeah. is growing and, and you know cycling is the new golf, all that kind of stuff, which was probably true at that time. I think they were lagging a little bit uh, behind the curve, but that isn't the case now. I mean, cycling has absolutely gone into a, uh, a quite a bit of a trough. So, how do your investors? How are you coping with that? quite apart from your investors how are, how are you coping with that trough it's a really good question and i actually was asked this recently as part of a rafa article from the times um because that journalist quoted the same kind of stat and i don't disagree with it but actually from a trading point of view i mean if you're going to try and win you have to try and win against everybody not just the first couple of people that you think are your competition and what i mean by that is when there's a lot of excitement in the market and it's growing, there are a lot of people uh, trying to service that excitement. So there are a lot of new businesses coming in. There are a lot of people thinking, oh, I'm going to jump on that bandwagon and I'm going ma- to make my fortune in that industry because it's exciting and it's growing and we're, you know, we're all sort of running on the back of the success of the GB cycling team in the Olympics and world championships over the last 10 years. So actually it gets very fragmented, the market, and as a brand like we are now, at the size we are, you end up competing with lots of very small businesses. And this is the same for all the big established brands. They're competing with lots of very small businesses who are selling quite a, a limited amount of product to their direct network, people they know, friends of friends, you know. but it doesn't really expand much more than that because they don't have a proper marketing budget. They don't have proper marketing and sales planning and they don't have the money to reach a wider audience of people to sell beyond their direct network. Now, when you get to a stage like this, and we are definitely in a, you know, is a bit of a dip, but equally, I don't think it's a dip. I think it's a slowdown of acceleration. And I think it causes a lot of problems for brands that haven't established a strong foothold with an ability to talk to a wide audience on a sustainable basis. And we're past that now. So actually, what it, what it turns out for us to happen is there's a consolidation process. And now I'm competing much more back to Castelli, Asos, Rafa, instead of the literally infinite number of very, very small brands trying to get a foothold in the apparel market by turning over £100,000, £150,000 to their friends, which is possible, which is what I did in the very beginning. Um, and you end up having to compete in a very fragmented market. So it's not, I don't think it actually changes our need to be strong as a brand, have a far reaching marketing message with a very clear link to why we are better, why we are good and why you want to buy Lacole cycling clothing. Um, it's just happening now in a um, slightly more um, consolidated market if that makes sense do you think puma are surprised at that i mean i've described it as a trough you've described it as a deceleration uh either one of those do you think they're surprised at at what's happened with cycling i mean i'm not surprised and in some ways it makes it a little bit easier you know because you've got less people to worry about and um you know i think if you can ride out i think times like this and if they are a deceleration or a trough i don't mind you know it's only my opinion um, I could be right. You could be right. I don't mind. Um, they really test the business. And actually, I've always run my business like it has to be optimum all the time. 
So that actually doesn't make any difference if it's a deceleration, a trough, or a, or a real boom phase in, in the market. It doesn't make any difference because you have to run best practices all the time. And if you're winning customers and market share, you know, we've grown uh, 150% between last year and this year and 200% between the year before and 2018. So actually, I mean, we've proven with those performances, those turnover performances, that we can win and achieve very strong growth in what anyone might describe as either a deceleration or a trough. And I intend that to continue because ultimately, you know, I'm trying to win customers off Rafa, Castelli, Assos, Santini, um, Attacker, Map, you know, all of those brands. I just need to win a little bit, just a few percent of their customers, and we grow another 150 to 200% next year. That's exactly where our intentions are. So you, you've, you're always going to be you're always going to be focused on premium. You're not talking about bringing in you know, lower levels of of uh, Lecol. So I think that's actually a good question for me to be able to answer like this. Yes, the brand is premium because I am quite a perfectionist and an expert at cycling to know how to spec either a jersey, shorts, jacket, tights in a really quality way so you get value for money and it is at a high level but i'm not a snob i'm not a cycling snob i've been involved in cycling since i was a junior before a junior and i've come through every level of cycling on my own uh racing career um and i've i'm now you know a fairly affluent business owner but still active keen cyclist with a passion for the sport just as much as it was when i was 17 so I really want the brand to be perceived as um, not snobby, not too premium, but quality. But equally, we do try and generate uh, product development. That means we have the second tier and the third tier of price point that is more affordable. Um, we try and deliver as much value and quality into those price points as we can within the margins that we have to work to. Um, and ultimately, you know, if you start with our lowest level product, you should still feel positive about it. And, you know, your aspiration is to work up into the higher quality products. But we embrace all cyclists at all levels. You know, there are cyclists in my office who ride to work only, and they've only just worn Lycra for the first time this year, yet they work for a cycling brand and, you know, they love wearing the products as well as someone like, a friend of mine like Jeremy Hunt, who's ex-Team Sky, ex-GB, um, professional for 19 years at the highest level at World Tour, living in Australia and wears the product almost every day. You know, those are the ranges of cyclists that, that are embraced by the brand. And I think that's really, really important. Um, I think if I was going to use the simplest way to describe uh, who Lacol is, is it's genuine. You know, I am a cyclist. I was a cyclist. I, I left school at 17 to be a cyclist. I put my, you know, excuse the term, but I, I put my balls on the line to buy a factory to service my desire and ambition to create the best product. And I needed control of my manufacturing to be able to do that to the highest degree. And I am CEO of and founder currently running the business, uh, you know, at the turnover we've grown to and adapting my skill sets to what's required of me every single day. Um, and that's exactly what I did in my own cycling career. And that's exactly what I value in, um, in qualities of all sorts of different areas is about being genuine, being honest and having integrity 
and wanting the best for all of our customers, you know, that is central to when I come into the office, what am I thinking? How can I deliver the value that I need to deliver to this business? So I would really be upset if people felt like it was snobby or premium in a way that was exclusive, excluding, sorry. So we are exclusive mainly because of a price point, but, but we're not excluding. And genuinely, if you or if any reader has a passion for cycling, then they share that passion with me and we have something in common. And I think that's really, that's a nice way to look at it. US market, uh, you, you, you went in with, uh, was it like a, a separate company that, that was taken on board on, in 2015, like a distributor? How, how did you get into the US market? Yeah, so the US market started as a connection on LinkedIn of a distributor who felt like they could represent the brand and service the US market. Um, there was a conversation that went on and we went through a lot of detail and I was convinced that he had a network big enough and was able to do what he said. And so we basically funded uh, an expansion plan into the US. We did it through a subsidiary, so a US-based company that was owned fully by the Coal Limited UK company. And uh, we began trading with on a distributor retail model into the US because we were still very small in terms of marketing spend from head office. And so we weren't really generating uh, uh, reach to an audience internationally like we are now. And I felt like the distributor model was probably the right way to start and that it would get caught up with by the direct consumer model and route to market a little bit later, which which we're doing more of now. It turned out I, my character judgment was off on the person, the individual that I backed to service that department. We also under, under invested into the territory and underestimated the size of the US in terms of geographical size. And simply for a travel budget to get around the country to see all your retailers, you probably need about $50,000 a year. And we just weren't at a level to be able to sustain that without generating a higher level of sales uh, from those retailers. And so we did the first year, but I had to stop and consolidate our expansion plan through a more direct consumer model um, uh, after about 18 months of trying to make that work in the US. It's a bit of a scar, to be honest, um, of one of my decisions that didn't work. And you know, we unfortunately did waste a fair bit of money uh, trying to get that up off the ground. Yeah, a fair few UK bike brands have had a very similar story. It, it's just, it's a tough nut to crack. Yeah, it is definitely. Mm, two, two very different halves of the the, the country, two different coasts. Um, so now you no longer have that kind of distribution in the US. It's, it's basically your website. Yes. Okay. So what is your expansion plans then? Is that the, the online brick and mortar where do you where do you see the for you yeah so so the winding up of the u.s subsidiary in terms of it trading was happening in parallel to the crowd cube raise in terms of timings and the hiring of simon creasy as a marketing director to build a stronger backbone to the business which is the direct consumer market so we've since really backed that channel and grown as a proportion of sales the direct consumer volume 
of uh, sales considerably uh, across uh, more so than the other departments. So custom is a channel and retail is a channel. So the three main channels, um, custom retail and online. And we will continue. We have grown considerably on the online and we'll continue to back that as the main channel of income for the business for the foreseeable future. But that is not to say um, we are not looking at international distribution again, but obviously with a bit more experience and a bit more resource behind the business, plus a lot more recognition internationally, which we've done um, a great job with our marketing over the last couple of years. So we are having conversations with Spanish distributors, um, Australian. We have an Australian distributor, which has been up and running for the last couple of years and has grown considerably in that time. Um, and like I said, with, with, a, with a lot more experience and a lot more resource, we're able to actually do justice to all those conversations. And how, how do you cope? And this is a, absolutely the same for all online brands, and certainly for clothing, is just it's very, very difficult to sell clothing online because of the sizing issues. So you're going to get an awful lot of returns. So how, how do you cope with, uh, with the demands there? That's a good question. And it, it, sizing is one of the most scruffy subjects um, I can think of. And I explain what I mean by scruffy is uh, every single person has a slightly different shape body. <laughs> That's just a fact. So a medium is not a medium. A medium is like six foot one or five foot nine, but one is, you know, nine stone, one is 11 stone. And, you know, there could be three or four inches difference in height. Plus, we all have slightly different expectations of preference around what we want a product to feel like. And, and um, those are all things that need aligning for a brand to connect to the customer in the way that the customer is either expecting or, or wanting. And a lot of that is also down to the message. So the brand has to be very, very clear and obvious about what you're getting in terms of size and fit to make sure that the customer's expectations align with what they will receive in the post. So we do have retailers. We don't have a huge number, but we've found a way to connect to that consumer with the message. That means actually our returns are very, very low. Occasionally we have, so in terms of returns, because they're not satisfied, they're extremely low. Uh, returns for exchange of size are uh, vary between product and you know at worst it's 15 to 20 percent and on really good core products it's as low as two or three percent um so actually those sort of numbers we can we can manage with and we can definitely service a very quick turnaround to exchange sizing for customers who didn't quite get to the right size first but then once you've got your in inverted commas your lecole size you then know what to order from then on, or does it go across the the, the different categories? And you're you've still got to have different sizes across the different categories. Yeah. So basically, yes. Yeah, so we do. Um, so basically, once you've got your local sizing dialed in for what you like and what you want, then yes, absolutely, that's easier for the return customer to know what they should get. I design every product to uh, to mean that if you're a size medium jersey, you should also be a size medium long sleeve and jacket and gilet and undervest, they should all be the same size. That's not to say that everybody is, but that's how they've been designed. Um, that's taking into consideration there are race fit pro jerseys and there are relaxed fit luxury jerseys. You should be the same size in each, but it will feel different. Now, not everybody fully 
gets what that means and what that feels like. So sometimes they get the pro jersey and they want to size up because they want it to feel like their luxury jersey. But there's been a very purposeful design process and sizing uh, uh, process that means that really you you are the same size. So often an example of this would be someone in front of me puts on a jersey, zips it up and says, oh, it doesn't fit. And I say, what do you mean it doesn't fit? They say it's too small. I'm like, it's not too small. You've got it on and you've zipped it up so it fits. And they say, yeah, but what do I look like? And I say to them, you look aero, which is exactly what that jersey was mm. designed for. <laughs> and they say, but I'm too big for this. And I'm like, but that's your concept. That's your own body concept. That's not, that's not the product. So that's just a classic interaction of the way I would describe how the jersey was supposed to fit and how someone, a customer of less experience would say, oh, it doesn't feel right. And I'm like, well, you know, tight is aero and that jersey is a pro jersey that's supposed to be aero. Do you suffer from counterfeiting? Uh, Not really. Yes, in that there are counterfeit products out there. Um, but we own our own factory. So I know there are absolutely no gray products in the world as in gone to one territory and then actually get transferred to the other Mm. through a, you know, uh, a buyback from someone else to someone else. Um, there are a few Chinese products on the market, but in terms of volume and in terms of risk to the business, it's extremely small. So you don't take a proactive approach in trying to close them down with, you know, the, the the standard solicitors that are out there for doing that in the bike industry. But you're talking about Alibaba.com and you know, it's someone, it's so small, it's almost almost not worth the time to even send the letter. Because I've, I've talked to some brands who, while they want to obviously combat it, are also kind of semi-pleased in that, well, if we're being counterfeited, it must mean we have some form of brand recognition out there above and beyond what we think we've got. Yeah, I mean... I think it's easy to see both sides to that, but ultimately you don't want it to happen. <laughs> but, you know, if you're like, I know Rafa have had some issues with counterfeit. I was with one of the founders of Rafa uh, on a photo shoot, a separate photo shoot, uh, not Lacolla, not Rafa. And he was talking about someone he saw with a Rafa jersey on that wasn't the right colorway, as in the band didn't match, you know, the, the embroidery logo. And I think it turned out this is just hearsay, but this is an example. They obviously don't own their own manufacturing, so they use suppliers. And the supplier had accidentally made, you know, a couple of hundred jerseys in the wrong colorway. And then obviously they wouldn't be accepted, but he's not going to waste the stock of a brand that's got such a strong, you know, recognition in the cycling industry. So they were getting sold on eBay for 25 quid. You know, and that's something that is a challenge if you're using suppliers. But again, it's a lot tighter when you own your own manufacturing because I can control that and police that much more um, closely. Now, this is going to be a, a, a sort of a, a, a double-edged question here, but was life uh, better as an athlete or as a running a business? But of course, you, you it's double-edged because you did it both at the same time. So you can actually see both sides of it at exactly the same I time. Do. No one's ever asked me that question before. So you're the first. Well done. Um, it's a difficult one to answer. So really keeping it simple, when people ask me, do I miss racing? My answer is a resounding yes. If they say, do you want to go back and do it again? It's a resounding no. So it's a, it's a bit of a conflict inside me when it comes to my career. Now, I also didn't get paid very much, um, in my racing career, not entirely because I wasn't good enough, but there's a little bit of politics and a little bit of 
you know, wrong place, wrong time kind of thing. Um, I mean, I lived off my racing career for a long time, but I, I wasn't affluent. And, um, you know, my business has provided me, or the business that I've built has provided me a much better opportunity to make more money if I can keep doing a good job at it. So while it's much more complex to run a business because being an athlete is very singular. It's, it's literally about you and your performance and your psychology and your physical performance, as opposed to in the office, I'm thinking about every other person and their psychology, their, you know, satisfaction, their contribution to the business, um, the way they interact with each other, making sure that, you know, everyone gets on and everyone's clear about what we're trying to deliver. It's, it's very not me. And actually the business started to grow and we started to employ people at the same time as I started to have kids. And not that I look at my employees as kids, but you know, there is a sense of responsibility to every employee. It's my job to make a positive working environment. It's my job to supply all the resources that every single individual that works for Lacole needs to do their job properly. And if I don't do that, they can only do as well as the ingredients that I give them. So I do take that very seriously. And actually it is a lot like having kids in the, you know, you're looking out for them. You can't do it for them, but you obviously work your hardest to give them everything they need to be able to do the best job they can. You know, I, I view parenting in a similar way. And is your mum happy that you took that decision to to forego that 30 quid family credit? Yes, yeah, I think so. I haven't actually asked her directly. I mean, I'm laughing about it, but um, my mum is an interesting character in combination, in comparison to me, because I'm one of the most driven and ambitious people I've ever come across. I've met a few of me, but I'm one of the absolute highest. And I kind of make the caveat that my uh, my standard as a cyclist, as a competitor, wasn't represented by my level of commitment and ambition. It was, you know, the body I'm born into is only as good as it is kind of thing. So I didn't win the Tour de France like Bradley, and, you know, I've not won 30 stages of the Tour like Cav, but I don't believe they are more keen and more committed to achieve their results than I was. So my mum is like the opposite of that. She's as, uh, she's as unambitious as I, as I am. And she's as undriven as I am. So she would never have a judgment about whether I made the right or wrong decision. She just wants me to be happy. That, that's a lovely place to end. I would say Yanto, thank you very much. And that was Yanto Barker, the founder and CEO of Lecole Cycle Clothing. Links to Lecole and more can be found on the-spokesmen.com. The Spokesman Cycling Podcast is brought to you in association with Jensen USA. The next episode will be another head-to-head. I'll be chatting with my son, Josh, who picked up a gravel bike from the giant factory in Shanghai, China, and has ridden it solo back to the UK. Well, at the moment, he's actually in the Netherlands, and I will be joining him there next week so we can ride back together. The plan is to meet at Giants HQ in Lelystad and then ride to the port of Amsterdam for the DFDS ferry back to Newcastle. I'm really looking forward to seeing Josh and finding out more about his many adventures. With a fair wind, that show should be out in the first week of December. Meanwhile, get out there and ride. <laughs>